And so before I pray and before we look at Psalm 50, let me, let me say two bold things that I may regret or that you may disagree with. The first, and not because I'm particularly well-prepared or I feel the Holy Spirit in an unusual way today, I don't, but in this season, in the fall, we're doing this series on why do we gather together in person? Why don't you just stay home and listen to this tomorrow when Richard puts it on the, on the website, the sermon, all the songs you can listen to on Spotify. Well, why gather together in person? And I suspect that today's sermon will be the most important word in this entire series. Not because of me, but because of Psalm 50. And so to follow up from that, here is something I would commend to you, and I hope it will make more sense in a couple of minutes when we're done with Psalm 50. Here would be a, br- a great practice to get into. I would commend to you, don't want to bind your conscience with something that's not required, but I would commend it to you. It could be on Saturday night. Now that we meet on Sundays at 2 p.m., it could even be Sunday morning when you wake up because you got lots of time before you need to be here at church on Sundays. A great practice would be as you get ready to come into God's presence with his people at Sunday at 2 p.m. if you're part of our church, other churches that you might be a part of or in the future you're a part of, open up Psalm 50, read it, and reflect on it before you come for worship. I think if I had to make my own stab, I know this is subjective, but I think this is the single most illuminating passage in one place in scripture on what we're doing when we gather together for worship. I think this sums up the corporate worship gathering of the people of God, whether in the Old Testament with Israel, the new covenant with the church, more than any other single passage. And so I'm very excited for us to look at this. I'm going to try to keep this really brief and really on point, just the main points here. And then the real goal is for us to go through and experience every other element of worship through what we hear in this passage. There are, if you're looking at it, or if you're just remembering or thinking about what Ashley read out loud for us, there are three sections, pretty obviously, in Psalm 50. Verses 1 through 6 summons us into God's presence. And so I don't want to put any like unhelpful legalistic guilt on people. It's not that, you know, if you ever miss church, that that's the worst sin in the world. But but participating in corporate worship in the body of Christ is not optional. There is a sense, one commentator with the language here of legal witness, God bears witness against his people, the heavens and the earth are summoned to testify against us, that, that we'll talk about this in a little while. One reason we confess our sins every week is we always come every week as those who have not been what we are supposed to be in the previous six days. And that's normal. It's every single one of us every week. And so it's probably too strong and too negative of language. We have some lawyers and some law students in this church, um, but there's a sense in which Psalm 50 describes our being summoned into God's presence like a subpoena, that a subpoena is not optional. You are someone, or you could put it this way, it's like being called to a meeting by your boss. This is not optional, or it's being summoned to a family meeting. This is not something that we do just when we feel like it, that that God, and to put it this way, well, next week, we might wrap up this series next week, we'll see that that's central to the biblical Christian vision of worship is that worship is not our idea. It's God's idea. We are, when we come into worship, we are responding to a summons an invitation. We are not trying to initiate a conversation or initiate a relationship that has not yet come into existence. Um, The main image that Psalm 50 uses for the worship gathering, for when God's people are summoned by God into his presence, is covenant renewal. Here is a God that we are already in relationship with, in covenant with, and we are summoned into his presence week after week to be renewed in our relationship with him, to be renewed with 
uh, with our kind of proper orientation towards God. And so as basic as this is, and, and it also should, let me find a place for this real quick. It should orient us in a really practical way that if you come in here, just think socially, if you walk into a setting and everybody's being quiet, maybe even awkwardly quiet, like Andy said, nobody knows each other and everybody's being silent. There's a big difference between saying something to break silence and start a conversation in between that and somebody else has already spoken and you could just ignore what they speak and just take the conversation in a completely different direction. Everybody will be like, what are you doing? Like, like that person just said this and you just completely changed the subject, you didn't respond. Or listening to what's being said and responding to a conversation that has already begun. When we come for worship every week, we are entering a conversation that has already started. We are coming to a family gathering where we are already a family. The, the, the imagery in the first section is when we come together every week, God breaks his silence and he addresses us. And there's an imagery of a devouring fire, kind of like at Mount Sinai when, when God redeems his people and he gives the law, that God comes in a cloud, in a storm, and in fire. Of course, we don't see that literally, but the imagery is that God is present during these times and in these spaces in a way that he's not the rest of the week. Jesus says, if any two or three gather together in my name, I am with them, which implies that when we gather together corporately, and, and here are two extremes that I want us to avoid when it comes to worship, and you hear the, these, these kind of paradigms out there a lot. The first extreme is this, which is all of life is worship, which is true. Every moment of the day, Every space and situation we are in, we are called to worship God. Think of the beginning of Romans 12, that we are to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, all of life, every space, every situation is worship. That's true. But that can be used in such a way to kind of devalue the importance of this specific gathering every week. As if this is just same old, same old, and you maybe don't even, you can just go worship on your own. I've often heard Christians say like, I don't need to listen to a sermon. I just need to look at a beautiful waterfall. I don't need to know Christians. I just need to read the Bible. I don't need to come and sing corporately. I'll just pray on my own and have a quiet time. And that's to misunderstand how God works and how he summons us together for a covenant renewal for, for this corporate worship. On the other hand, here's another extreme, only this time, only this space every week is worship and the rest of the week is secular. The rest of the week, God's not there, he's not speaking, he's not present. Neither of those extremes are true. All of life is worship and yet somehow, and I, I hope we can understand this a little better by the end of the, the message today, somehow this space and this time every week is unlike every other time in every other space the rest of the week. Something happens here. God breaks his silence here. Now, some of you might disagree with this, depending on your personality, your background, the way you experience God, but I think if we're being honest, almost all of us would agree that we experienced a lot of silence from God the last six days, that we often were not aware of his presence, that, that we often experience God's hiddenness, we often experience God's silence, and, that, and that's normal. It's not that God is absent, and it's not that he's absolutely silent, but when we gather together, God breaks his silence, and he addresses us in this moment. When we come to the Lord's table, Jesus is here with us in that moment in a way that he is not in other moments. Not to say that he's not there in other moments. Some say that God is not always speaking to us. That You have to be nuanced here. But God speaks to us and we hear his voice when we gather together and he comes 
in a way that he is not there the rest of the week. This is a moment when we are summoned together to worship in a particular way. And so I do want us to hear again, not hopefully in a legalistic way, not in an unhelpful way, that we are summoned by a God who is speaking and that when we gather together, God also gathers together with us in a way that you will not experience if you are on your own, if you skip out on corporate worship, in a way that you will not experience in quiet times, in a way that you will not experience if you're worshiping individually at your job and in your free time and over here and over here, that this moment is really important. So I am a little hesitant to use this analogy. All analogies when it comes to God are always limited And they are always prone to distortion. This one, I think, is also prone to to maybe sounding trite. um, And yet I want to use it because I think it's true. Here is the way to, to navigate these two extremes. All of life is worship. So why do I need to come to church on Sunday? Or only church is worship. Therefore, the rest of the week, I I have no obligations to God. There's no relationship there. How do you navigate those two extremes? And here is the analogy I want to use. I'll I'll use it in a couple different ways, but the main one is here. In a marriage, Helen and I have been married for a number of years now. By the way, um, I'll mention Helen a couple of times in this um, sermon to, to use an analogy. Helen is both sick right now. Would encourage you to be praying for Helen. And today is Helen's birthday. And so later today, I'm going to bring flowers to Helen. And I'm going to use as an analogy for what we are doing or should be doing with God every week, that to bring a sacrifice of praise to God, great analogy for that. John Golden Gay, this great Old Testament scholar, says it's like bringing flowers to someone that you love. If you think that they need this, and therefore you are giving them something they don't have, or if you're doing it to manipulate them, that's not what it's for. But nonetheless, even though Helen will not be improved at all by flowers, if she experiences it as it comes out of a heart of delight for me, that it comes out of this communicates my affection, my value, my priority of you, she will be pleased by these flowers, even if they're not her favorite color, even if I forget what her favorite flowers are and I buy her the wrong ones, she'll be pleased with it. Fifth-rate poetry, sixth-rate tunes. God is pleased with it if it comes from a heart that's in the right place. And so here is my analogy for what we're doing every Sunday. This is date night between us and God. That's what the worship service is. I am married to Helen the rest of the week. We interact with each other. We, we, we sleep in the same apartment every night, but we get busy the rest of the week. I have long days of work. She has long days of work. Sometimes she's out this night. Sometimes I'm out that night. Sometimes we're in the same room, but we're focused on different things. Date night is the time where you lay everything else aside. Every other distraction, turn your phone off. No work. No talking about the kids. No talking about things that happened at work. Exciting. Or this is a time to see each other, to be present with each other, to reorient the things in the previous six days. If you do a date night, say once a week, which in marriage, in a a romantic relationship, this is also not legalistic saying you have to do it this way. Almost anybody who's been married for a while knows that having a regular date night is a really healthy practice because it's so easy to lose sight of each other. It's so easy to get distracted by the busyness of life, the difficulty of life. But a date night is also not this time where all of a sudden, after not prioritizing each other, not caring about each other, not giving each other the time of day, we all of a sudden overcome that. The date night both is the expression of the other six days of the week, but also helps us to reorient into the coming week in a way that breaks bad habits, in a way that provides more motivation, in a way that the experience of it reminds you what this marriage is actually about. 
It could be just a, a monthly gathering, a, a weekly gathering between friends that are really close to each other. It could be a family meeting where the parents and the kids and the siblings, they all come together, whatever you want to call it. But I want us to think about the worship gathering like that. We are in a relationship with God the rest of the week, but here everything else is laid aside. Here, if you're sending emails from the pew on your phone to your boss, I would encourage you not to do that. If you are thinking about what you need to do tomorrow, I would encourage you to lay that aside. If you are very distracted by things that happened this past week but are unfinished or broken, it's absolutely normal, but leave that at the door when you come in. This is date night between God and his people. This is a time that is in the expression of a relationship that exists the rest of the week, and nonetheless, there's something different and something important that happens here where we refocus. And so I think that's what God summons us to. We are his covenant people. He is our husband. We are his bride. He is our father. We are his children. He is the head. We are the body. And he summons us to experience him and to hear him and to respond to him and to be present with him. And so in worship every week, God comes. The question is, do we? In worship every week, God speaks and he breaks his silence. Do we? That's the question. And so the second and the third section, basically um, verses 7 through 15 is all about sacrifice, which is central to worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then the third section, 16 through 23, is all about sin, that, that we leave sin behind almost every time. And I know that this can become unhelpful, both in church, but also in a marriage, that on the one hand, we don't primarily focus on what we do wrong and, and then, you know, become um, incriminatory towards each other, become accusatory towards each other. But almost every date night in the real world includes both people talking about, ah, I wish I had prioritized you better this past week, or I'm sorry that I didn't do this better or that I let this get, and also make intentions and commitments moving forward to do it differently in the week to come. Date night does that in a marriage. It helps us to retrospectively say, I really dropped the ball there. I didn't give you my best. You deserve more than this. And it also helps us to, some of the imagery here in Psalm 50 is making vows, which is marriage language, covenant language, that we also make vows moving forward. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better wife. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better mom. I want to be a better son or daughter or sibling, better friend in the week to come. And so the rest of Psalm 50, which we'll look at briefly, is all about re orienting how we look at these moments. So let's look at sacrifice real quick. Um, if you know anything about Christianity compared to Judaism in the Old Testament, we do not sacrifice animals in, in Christianity. We don't do that anymore. And so you might think, ah, this sacrifice stuff, that, that's Old Testament, that's not there anymore. We are also, if you didn't know, we're a Protestant church. And so when we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, unlike our Catholic brothers and sisters, we don't understand this moment as a sacrifice that we make to God. We understand the Lord's table as our reception of Jesus's sacrifice in gratitude, but we don't understand this moment as me or the people overall making a sacrifice to God that makes us acceptable. And yet the New Testament constantly uses sacrificial language to describe worship. It constantly uses sacrificial imagery to describe what we are doing when we come into God's presence. And part of the background here, if you're looking, at Psalm 50. I love this section of Psalm 50. It's sarcastic. It's funny. It's insightful. It's powerful. God says, starting in verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God, 
And it's not for your sacrifices that I rebuke you. It's not that like, if you just brought more animals that are dead and killed them here, or you brought different kinds and different kind of flowers, then I'd really be impressed. That's not my problem with you, my people. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings, they're continually before me. My people are constantly bringing these sacrifices to me. Everybody knows this. Some of you have even seen it, whether in your parents or in your own relationship. There's a kind of husband that is constantly bringing flowers to his wife, and she absolutely abhors it because of the context in which it arises. That is trying to over come or compensate for him not loving her, him trying to get off the hook and not be in the doghouse anymore, even though he doesn't change his ways. And she actually comes to despise the gifts that he brings her on a regular basis because they actually mask something else that's going on. And that's what God says to his people here about sacrifices. And so he says in verse nine, guys, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why? Because every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I created it. It belongs to me. You're not giving me something I don't already own when you come into my presence. I know all the birds of the hills and everything that moves in the field is mine. You cannot bring me anything that's not already mine. Then he goes on, and this is such an interesting statement from God, the creator of heaven and earth. Here this is spoken to you individually. Even if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Even if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the world in its fullness are mine. God is never hungry, but even if he was, he does not need you to remedy that lack. He has all the resources he needs. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Implied rhetorical question. No, is the implied answer. So offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, praise, and perform your vows to the Most High. Those two things are the heart of the psalm. When we come into God's presence, we give a sacrifice of thanksgiving or praise, and we bring a sacrifice of vows that are to be fulfilled. This is the heart of worship in Psalm 50. And I think throughout the Old Testament and throughout the scriptures, we'll talk about it a little more in just a moment. Call upon me when you are in trouble. Worship is not you helping God from his trouble. He's hungry and we bring him something to eat. That would assume that worship God's in trouble and we're helping him out. It's not what worship is. Worship is you are always in trouble. Call upon me to help you. And then after I deliver you, glorify me. That's the heart of worship. And so some of you might know this, that in the ancient Near East that Israel lived in, there were a number of other cultures that were all also religious. They had their own gods. They had their own rituals. They had their own um, kind of ideology, but they all had sacrifice. Israel is not unique in having sacrifice. If you ever get a chance, some of you have maybe read them before or would encourage you to read them in the future. There's all these kind of narratives from other religions in the ancient Near East. Gilgamesh, Atrahasis. Anuma Elish, and they all have stories of what's gone wrong between the gods and human beings, and sacrifice is always part of making it right, but here's the difference. In one of the stories, the gods literally, in Psalm 50 is alluding to this, the gods rely on their worshipers to bring them lunch and dinner. 
That's what the dead animals are. They're lunch and dinner for the gods. And so as human beings begin to overpopulate in the world and they eat more, the flood is sent by the gods in one of these stories as a form of population control because the gods are beginning to go hungry. Because you guys are eating all the food and I need you to bring me the food and sacrifice. And so the gods send the flood to wipe out 90% of the world so that more lambs and goats and bulls can start coming and sacrifice. And God says to Israel, that is not what sacrifice is for me. And in another one of these stories, it's almost like you can think of like an old cranky Clint Eastwood in a movie sitting on his porch with a shotgun, yelling at the kids to get off the lawn. In one of the stories, the gods are bothered by how loud you guys are and the flood is sent as noise control. You guys are getting too rowdy and so the flood is sent. And in all of these stories, the gods are needy. The gods are weak. The gods are dependent on us. And the God of Israel says that is not what sacrifice is. I want to do this real quick, but in Psalm 50, there are at least three ways, and these are so important for us to worship God rightly. There are at least three ways that God is described as different from us. If you've been here before, you know I love stressing that we are the image of God, that we are called to be holy as God is holy, merciful as God is merciful. We are to be like God in so many ways. But in a way that's not connected to our sin, but just connected to he's God and we're not. He's the creator and we're the creature. God is always unlike us in fundamental ways. And here are three ways that God is different. In this psalm, twice it references God breaking his silence. And at the second part, at the end of the psalm, in verse 21, God says, these things you have done. You've been committing sin and injustice all week long. These things you have done and I have been silent. I have not brought judgment, and you inferred from that that I am just like you. We are often silent in the face of injustice. We are often silent when a situation is broken. We are often silent when we should do something, but why are we silent? And it's usually cowardice, indifference, or incompetence. I don't know what to say, or I'm afraid of our responsibility. God breaking his silence or God remaining silent is because he is patient and because he is long-suffering, and because he is giving room for repentance. So God's silence, which we experience much of our lives outside of Sundays, don't interpret it as being like your silence and my silence. It's not that kind of a silence. Another one he mentions is at the very beginning of the psalm, in verse 5, and here is something that I think as as absurd and, and ridiculous and goofy as my sound, it's important for us to be really unambiguously clear on this. In verse 5, It says, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And of course, in the next section of the psalm, it's going to begin indicting us as those who every week, it's always true, every week we come together, which is why we always confess our sins, that every single one of us, including me, has broken covenant with God this past week. Here's a difference between us and God. Every time we come into God's presence, the heavens declare his righteousness and the earth. History shows that he has kept his promises. And so when we come, there is a place for lament. There is a place for doubt. There is a place for being frustrated with God, with not understanding God. But even when we lament, we ask questions that are open-ended. What are you doing, Lord? How much longer? Why are you hiding your face? We never in worship accuse God of not being faithful. Here is something that we all know when we come together on Sunday. God has been unbelievably faithful to every single one of us the past six days. And so we bring no accusations, we bring no complaints, 
We only bring praise. Now, it might be that we can't perceive, and this is often the case in the ambiguity of life, the ambiguity of our experience, the ambiguity of history, which is why we don't, every once in a while, we might have somebody give their testimony, but if I told you or Trevor told you or Ashley told you in a testimony, here's how God was faithful to me this week, you might question, is that actually God being faithful? Is that story even true? And even if it's true for Trevor, that's not my experience this week. The reason we confess our faith by recounting God's deeds in history, the reason we come to the Lord's table is these are moments that we need to remember where God's faithfulness is absolutely clear, where God's faithfulness is unambiguous. And we remember these are the moments when who God is, it shines brightly. We don't primarily look at our experience the past six days. We primarily remember. And and so any Um, gathering that comes together that is filled with the Spirit is going to be a gathering that is regularly articulating and celebrating that God has kept all of his obligations to us, that God has been faithful, that God has been good. Here is one place that the date night analogy breaks down. Every time Helen and I have a date night, both of us at some point are going to say sorry to each other. Worship is filled with us saying sorry to God. There will never be a moment that God apologizes to us, not because he's proud, not because he's, he lacks humility, but because that would be untrue. That would be false. The heavens declare his righteousness. History bears witness that the earth is full of his steadfast love. The only question is whether we have eyes to see that. The only question is whether we're awake. But when we come, we're not like, well, God, I said sorry. Where's your apology? I didn't get all this stuff I wanted this week. I'm really disappointed with my experience of life. That is to misunderstand our relationship to God and God's relationship to the world. But most importantly, and we'll we'll move into the, the heart of this, and then we'll experience the rest of the service through this. The most important way that God is different from us in this psalm is that whereas we as creatures, not just as sinners, not even primarily as sinners, just as creatures, we are limited, we are weak, we are needy, every day we wake up and we very quickly get hungry and we very quickly become thirsty. We very quickly become lonely. We very quickly become cranky. We very quickly become fearful and insecure. We very quickly become unhappy and depressed. And most of what we need needs to come from the outside into us. God is not like this. God needs nothing. From him and through him and to him are all things. When he says everything on earth is mine, whatever God is up to in inviting us into his presence, he is not needy. He is not codependent. He is not looking for us to shore up some lack or some loneliness or some insecurity he has. I read something from him a little earlier. Let me read this. This is from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, if there was any idea that God had set a sort of exam for us that we might get good grades by deserving them, that has to be wiped out when we come into his presence. If there was any sort of idea of a bargain, any idea that we could perform our side of a contract and thus put God in our debt so that it was now up to him in mere justice to live up to his side, that has to be wiped out. I think every person who has any kind of vague belief in God until he becomes a Christian and and a mature Christian has the idea that religion is like an exam or a bargain. That religion is like an exam or a bargain. The first result of real Christianity is to blow that idea into bits. 
When they find it blown in the bits, some people think this means that Christianity is a failure and they give up. They seem to imagine that God is very simple-minded. In fact, of course, God knows all about this. One of the very things Christianity was designed to do was to blow this idea into bits in our lives. God has been waiting for the moment at which you discover that there is no question of earning a passing mark on the exam or of ever putting him into your debt. Then comes another discovery. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment has been given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of the rest of your life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense already his own. So that when we talk of a man or a woman doing anything for God or giving anything to God or serving God, language that we often use, and and rightly so, here is what it is really like. Here's what we should mean. It is like a small child before a week before his dad's birthday or a week before Christmas going up to his dad and saying, Dad, give me sixpence. C.S. Lewis is British. Give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, hands over the sixpence, and he's pleased with the present the child buys for him, and it's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on this transaction. That's not what's going on here. When a human being has made these two discoveries, no exam, no bargain, you cannot give anything to God, and second, what you do give he has already given to you, now God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The human being is awake now. We need to know that every week that we come into God's presence. What we give to him is only what he has first given to us. In Romans 11, and we just sang it, and we're going to sing it again in a few minutes at the end of the service, we sang, from him are all things, to him are all things. That's his language. That Paul asked this rhetorical question right before that, and he says, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God, oh, the depth of the knowledge of God, oh, the depth of the riches of God. God's wealth is infinite. God's resources are unsearchable. And so Paul then asks three rhetorical questions, and the last one he gets from Job, because Job needed to learn this, who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? And then God, now Paul doesn't quote this, but God Ask Job that question in the book of Job at the end of the book. And God says to Job, who has ever given a gift to me that he should be repaid? Because the earth and all of its fullness is mine. Elihu, who's this interesting figure who I think is a good guy in the book of Job, he asked Job a question earlier on that I would encourage you to ask yourself on a regular basis. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? And what does he receive from your hand? Nothing that he has not first given to you. Jesus encourages us in Luke 17 with this parable to think about our relationship with God. A, a master or, a, or an employee, who, uh, an employer, who, who calls his servants in after they've worked all day, he doesn't say, hey guys, thanks so much, I'm in your debt. He says, you've done your work, now now set the table and feed me my dinner. And Jesus says, in the same way, even after you have done everything that God requires of you, only say we are unworthy servants. Now that sounds cold maybe, but only if you first convince yourself that you are giving God something so that he would owe you afterwards. And so here is the, the first thing, I think, Psalm 50. And Psalm 50 is, even though it's primarily positive, it's filled with two warnings. And the first warning is this. When we come together, no manipulation. No manipulation. 
We are not doing something so that God will now be disposed to us differently in the next six days. We are not putting him in our debt so that he would now have to do something and his freedom is curtailed or his purposes are subordinated to our desires. When we come into God's presence, we do offer sacrifices, but they must not be motivated by manipulation. That's not the relationship. It assumes that God needs something. It assumes that our desires are central. So no manipulation. Soren Kierkegaard, another one I was going to mention, is that we have lots of freedom. We talked about this last week. Christian communities can worship God in lots of different ways. The order of service, the songs they sing, the way they do it. The songs we sang today are not the songs anybody else has to sing. Here's one song we're never going to sing on Sunday morning. Lin-Manuel Miranda in Moana, you're welcome. We're never going to look at God and say, you're welcome, God. We're never going to sing that as an act of worship because that is to misconstrue what is going on. When we come to God, even when we're giving, we are giving as children who are giving back to someone something that they don't need and that ultimately comes from them. That is not to say that God doesn't delight in our praise. He does, but because he loves us and not because he needs us. Because he invites us into our, his joy, not because he's lonely without us. And it is really, really important that we know that when we come here. We are the recipients in worship. We are the needy ones in worship. We are the empty ones. There's a great line in an old show that I think a lot of you are young enough now that you've only seen this on reruns if you've seen it all. But years ago, there was a show called That 70s Show, which you probably know about. And there was a scene where Eric goes off to college and he comes back home for, I think, fall break, his first year in college. And he just, as guys at that age often do, he just recedes immediately into like childish with his family. And he's in bed all day long. He's just, you know, binge watching shows on TV. His mom's making him breakfast and lunch and dinner and bringing him into bed. And he's just being so lazy. And his girlfriend is getting frustrated. Like, why are you just sitting in bed all day? Like, like we haven't seen each other in a couple of months. And at one point there is this really funny moment but it's so insightful where Eric can't even get out of bed for his girlfriend. He's just being so lazy. And he puts a couple of $20 bills on his dresser and he points at him and he goes, why don't you go buy yourself something pretty? And she has the best response where he goes, Eric, money is for hookers. Gifts are for girlfriends. And I would encourage you to think about that with the gifts that you bring God. Money is for false gods and idols that you want something from and that you are relating to as a means to an end. Gifts are for your creator. And so when we bring a sacrifice, it's like bringing flowers to someone that you love. It's like a handwritten card to someone that you value. You're not giving them something they lack. You are expressing how much they mean to you. That's all it is. And anything else is to misunderstand what is going on. The second thing, and we'll end with this, is that if sacrifice, the first part of it, real sacrifice, acceptable sacrifice to God, if the first part of it is thanksgiving, praise, gratitude for grace, words of affirmation, adoration, that we really do sing and we, we, we give God praise with our words and, and with our hearts. The second part, according to Psalm 50, and there are so many passages elsewhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament like this, is we fulfill vows that we have made. That that's the sacrifice that God wants. And so in the third and final section, he mentions, you guys show up and you sing in tune and you're really loud and you're really exuberant. 
but you're stealing and you're oppressing the poor the other six days and you're committing adultery and you're not listening to my commands and you're dishonoring me and you're dishonoring those who are in my image and then you come and you give me sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. I don't want that. Um, That is not what God wants. And so Miroslav Wolf has this great line where he says, at the heart of worship, the essence of worship in scripture is adoration and action. Expressing love and obedience in listening to his commands. And so if on the one hand, and we're all familiar, I think, of just this prophetic rebuke that comes from the prophets over and over again, that God does not want our worship if we are not interested in justice and righteousness the other six days. There is no worship without justice. It's also true that there is no justice without worship. Idolatry is always the root of immorality, and immorality is always the evidence that worship is false. And so the other thing, and this is what Helen and I often do, the flowers that I bring to Helen are one of two things over and over and over again, and the gifts that we bring to God are these two things over and over and over again, if we know what's going on. The flowers I bring to Helen are, on the one hand, I delight in you. You are the most important thing in the universe to me. In this world, Helen, I love you. You you are my priority. And the other thing I do with flowers is, sorry for screwing up this past week. Sorry for not being a very good husband. Sorry that I didn't speak of you and to you. Sorry I didn't prioritize you. And so when we bring flowers, it's often repentance, contrition. I'm sorry. And so this is not to say that if you screwed up this past week that you can't be here for worship, we all show up having not fulfilled our covenant obligations. But it does mean when we come to the Lord's table, when we confess our sins, that part of the sacrifice we bring, and many of you will notice this whole section of the Psalms is filled with this theme. The very next Psalm is the prayer that David prayed after he murdered Uriah and after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And what he learned when he came back into God's presence in Psalm 51, is Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise because you will not delight in sacrifice in response to this grievous injustice and sin. Otherwise, I would give it. You will not be pleased with a lot of dead animals that I could drop on the altar. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. And so here are these two sacrifices we bring to date night every week, and we go out of date night with, which is, I love you, I adore you, you are the most important thing in the universe to me, and I'm sorry I didn't show you that in a lot of different ways this past week. And then we make vows to try to go into the rest of the week not doing that in exactly the same way. And so here are a couple of things as we end, and we go into the rest of the service through this lens. Here are a couple of things you could do each week in, in, during our time together that I think would be profitable. One is to take this hour and a half each week and spend some time even during the service. It could be while the pastor is preaching. It could be during songs that we're singing. It could be during times of prayer, certainly during confession of sin in the Lord's table. And, and here are three related questions I would encourage you to ask. One is, what do I need to do differently? this coming week than I did this past week. That's a vow. What do I need to not do anymore that I was doing this past week? What do I need to start doing that I am not doing? This is, and here's the thing. That's what couples do on date night. 
They, they recalibrate. They look back at the previous week and say, this was not a healthy way for us to be married to each other this past week. It was, we should probably be doing this, but we're not doing it. Let's start doing this. That, that'll help our marriage be better. Or we're doing this, but that is really shooting us in the foot. Let's stop doing that. That's one of the conversations in a larger context of love, commitment, adoration that happens when you gather together in a moment of covenant renewal. And so adoration and action. And so if the first warning was the sacrifices we bring in worship, no manipulation, the second one is this, no hypocrisy, no posing, no pretending that we belong to God when we are not interested in belonging to him, no pretending that we're interested in his words when we are casting his words behind our back the rest of the week. Now, again, this is not, and it could be so easily misheard, this is not, guys, do a better job this week. Get your act together, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's just when we confess our sins, really show up in that moment. When we come to the Lord's table, really show up in this moment. Martin Luther, we're going to celebrate Reformation Day this coming week. Martin Luther, the original Protestant reformer, said this in a letter to his best friend, Philip Melanchthon, who was struggling with the sense that he was not good enough as a Christian, that he was under God's judgment, who had a really guilty conscience. And Martin Luther wrote this to him. If you are a preacher of mercy, if you really believe that God is merciful to sinners, then do not preach an imaginary but a true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true and not an imaginary sin. God does not save people who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly. Do not pretend what is going on in your life isn't actually going on. Embrace all of it and then trust in Christ for mercy all the more boldly still. And so when we come together, no manipulation, no hypocrisy, instead adoration, gratitude, thanksgiving, and saying we're sorry combined with, I'm gonna, by your grace, I'm gonna try to do this differently in the coming week. If you show up and you are indifferent to the unfaithfulness of the past week, and you are not intending to do it differently this coming week, no worship is acceptable. No worship is acceptable. If you think that you are putting God in your debt or you are doing a transaction here that will make God as a means to an end more likely to bring about what you hope will happen in your life in the week to come, no worship is acceptable from that vantage point. But if, like in any marriage, we come to give adoration and action that shows it consistently, we will always stumble. We won't do it perfectly, but that's at the heart of what this moment is. And so let me read this as we come to an end, and then we're really going to go into it. Sandra's going to come up. We're going to do our confession of faith. We're going to remember who God is and, and just articulate who he is. Galt's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in confession of sin. We'll do the Lord's table. We'll, we'll sing some more, and I hope that we get to experience all of it through this lens. What God is not interested in is manipulation, hypocrisy. What God is interested in is love and thanksgiving and in valuing of him and responding to him with the same kind of commitment that he has shown us this past week and that you can know even right now, a lot of things are gonna happen in the next six days that none of us can know about. Here is one thing you can know. God will be absolutely faithful to all of his obligations to you in the next six days. You can already know that right now. Next week, you can already know that there will be no need for the Most High to apologize to any of us. And yet, 
He desires our love. He desires our praise. And so in Psalm 50, it says it twice. Let's go back into the different elements of the service in light of this. In Psalm 50, kind of halfway through the psalm, verses 14 and 15, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. That's the two-beat rhythm at the heart of worship. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And in the last two lines, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Here's the heart of it. It's the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice who glorifies me. And to one who orders his way rightly intends to begin keeping covenant with God in response to God's faithfulness to us, that's the person that I will show my salvation to. Um, This is the heart of worship, according to Psalm 50. I know that because all of us are manipulators in our sin and all of us are hypocrites in our sin, I know, and that's why we get to do confession of sin. There's a lot that we can bring to confession of sin. Uh, We can bring the Lord's table. But what I really do want you to hear more than anything else is that gets us gets the bad stuff out of the way so that we can show up with what God actually cares about, which is love, relationship, gratitude, thanksgiving, and a response to him that mirrors what he is already and always will be for us. And so let's, every week we gather together, this is what date night is for. We are with God. We are in his presence. We are here to delight in him, to listen to him. And like in every marriage, date night will always have some, I'm saying I'm sorry for some stuff, and we'll have a, man, I need to do things a bit differently this coming week. That will always be part of Sunday worship for the rest of our lives as sinners. It will never be, worship will never be 100% free of pricking our conscience. If you are mainly interested in never feeling uncomfortable, never feeling guilty, and never having to change course, I would commend a lot of things to you, but I would not commend Christianity to you. But I would commend Christianity to you because I think it's good. And I think it's right. And I think it's beautiful and it's true. In the same way that I would commend marriage to you. And I would commend friendship to you. And I would commend family to you. Um, And so let's pray that that we would um, recalibrate in the next couple of moments and, and come into God's presence with the sacrifices that he actually desires.